Thanks for downloading this episode of On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com. My guest today is Mark Tierlink. He is a global strategist with IBM. He focuses on big data science and consumer behavior analytics. It is my pleasure to have him on this episode of On the Record Online, sponsored by IBM Big Data. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Uh, hi, Eric. Happy to be here. Now, you're, you're floating around somewhere in the ocean, yeah? Yeah, I do this uh, like once or twice a year. I try to uh, still take a serious race or a serious crossing, actually, and um, together with some buddies that I know for quite some time. So we go back like 20 plus years. And um, those are those are the good moments in life, I can tell you, just to be away from it all. But one of the best things of being in the ocean is the moment you really leave the shore. You have a satellite telephone for emergencies, but nothing else, which means that your team really has to uh, show that they're as great as you hope when you hire them. Where are you going? Um, mostly I do. Um, it depends if, if it's leisure or a race. When it's uh, races, it's mostly in the, either in the Caribbean or in the, uh, the North Sea. When it's... Uh, it's more leisure than we go transatlantic back and forth. I used to do that when I was a student, actually, to earn some money to uh, to go uh, to bring people's boat from Boston to Brest or vice versa. It's interesting because uh, sailing is a very, well, I should say uh, charting a course in a boat is a very precise exercise, yes? I mean, you know, one or two degrees off over the long haul and you're in the wrong country, yes? <clears throat> yeah, the wrong country, or as Columbus said, the wrong continent. Even. <laughs> yeah, it's it's. Um, I, I think one of the things I, I find is actually one of the best management experience is to to be part of a sailing crew. You learn that you are actually the most important of the team, and and I don't want that line to be quoted in by itself. But if I fail, everybody else fails. The team is going to be as good as I can make them as an individual and as the next individual. So the first part is I really need to focus on optimizing myself on a boat, whether I'm the captain or just one of the, the people pulling some ropes and, and hoisting some sail in the moment somebody else said it. And we as a team are as good as each individual wants to be for the team. So can I optimize myself for the team? Do I have to trust in my fellow team members, actually, when we do a handover, that actually the moment I'll shout that they'll hear me and they'll pick up? Do I feel comfortable in the decisions the person who makes does the navigation or who is the captain makes? And the more you become that navigator or that captain yourself, right, the point is, in what matter will I listen to my team members? And what moment will I say, guys, when I say tack, well, tack, we can evaluate later if it was good or bad, but that's what we do. And I think the essence of a good strategy, whether it's for big, big data or for, for your company or even for your career or your life, is saying, I am here, I want to be at point X at the horizon, 
I know what my destination is, or at least, the, but what are the points I'm going to attack? What are the really most important points that I will be heading to that I need to capitalize to make it to the next step? And when I coach people that work for me, I always ask them, like, what are the points in your life you've been able to capitalize so far? Forget about your job experience. Just look to who you are. What can you capitalize? And what's the next point you want to do? <clears throat> the same I have when we do project where we do analytics I have to like what are the core questions you want to answer I understand we all want to have an, uh, in the words of Bob Crandall an, an unfair a sustainable advantage but what is it you're going to do in the meanwhile what are your points your key points you can attack that you want to capitalize to get there in your market to make a difference to your customers to your employees your suppliers or the stock market whatever is important for you well, when you think about solving a problem like charting a course uh, for a ship, um, so you're using uh, maps and you're using um, a sextant and you're using numbers to figure out your destination, but you're considering all that information against your knowledge of the atmosphere and the ship and the crew and, uh, you know, the wind. So, you know, you're able to model that information, which is a lot of complex information in your head, and then you think about this idea of big data and converting uh, big data technologies into business insights. If you're three degrees off there, uh, you're going to come away with an insight that you know is is false. So how do you? And it seems like the more data you put into into the hopper, the more uh, potential for uh, misinformation there is. So how do you balance uh, that precision against? I guess, the imprecise nature, particularly of human language. Yeah, that's a real good point. And, and I'm going to take that in three pieces of, of, of question. Question number one is, how do you deal with a large amount of data that you can overview? And, and um, I really find it's important to realize that facts are more important than gut feeling. That doesn't mean you need to disregard your gut feeling, but when you have a series of facts about you, like how the weather is going to be, what the atmosphere is, which ships have been on this course, what has been your past experiences, that's something you can't disregard. You can still, especially in races, have a hunch. You know, you take a, a Hail Mary, but at least then you know the facts, and then you've got to build on your facts, and you put a hunch on top of it. I, I don't think... You can never have a 100% complete set of data. And that brings us to the next point. How do you deal with pollution or noise, right? I mean, one of the things I like about people like Nate Silver is they made it so clear for data scientists in our profession that separating the signal from the noise gets much harder when you have more data. And, and then the point is, how am I going to use the data, when I, whether it's sailing or business, I'm not just taking historic data to extrapolate. I think a lot of things go wrong by companies that keep extrapolating, that companies that build predictive models based on classic analytics. For instance, when you do business intelligence, you do phenomenal reporting, sophisticated reporting, looking back to the past. Nothing wrong with that. gives you a great explanation where things happened. The next point is, 
what's going to happen. You can extrapolate. You can say all the cars sitting in front of the city of New York trying to enter Manhattan at 8 o'clock, if I can extrapolate it, the city will be filled with cars by 12 o'clock and there will be stocking cars on top of each other by 3 o'clock. But there's a moment it tops off. And how do you recognize a top-off moment? How do you know that there is a non-stochastic pattern? And I think the biggest thing is in those 3% that you say is that a lot of people that have had some statistics or did some business intelligence, they start to do data science in the way that they used to do it. So they try to make models that actually are explained by past data and by past data sets. And you're never, ever going to predict with that. You're going to stay within that safe margin of error, and that, that's okay. But then you have a – I mean – Columbus, to go to the metaphor, really was convinced that if the earth was round and he just went westward, he'll made it to India, not taking the assumption with a lot of other data that there might be something in between the coast of Spain and, and the Japanese east coast. So um, when you think about like uh, Watson, right? Watson was uh, 2011. So in 2011, Watson winds up beating the two top uh, Jeopardy champions. And that's, you know, natural language processing. And so, you know, the thought when we saw that was, oh, my God, we're finally going to be able to call our cell phone provider and tell them, tell them, tell their voice recognition system what's wrong and they're going to route us in the right direction. But that really, you know, honestly has not been the result. Uh, a lot of these voice recognition systems that you talk to still get things wrong. What's holding us back from really realizing the power of this type of computing? Wow, that, that's, wow that's a really good question. Um, I, I think it's maturity, to be honest. When people saw Watson in Jeopardy in 2011, beautiful Valentine's Day victory, um, the reality was Watson took natural language, said, do I really understand the question? Do I have enough information to have context? So if you were talking about Hilton Paris and I wasn't talking about Paris Hilton, are we both talking about the socialite or is one of us talking about a hotel in, in um, the capital of France? So you needed some context. And in Jeopardy, you actually got that context. Those were the clues. Like chicks dig me is actually a category. It's a category the moment I get the first question. I know it's about female archaeologists. When I say the word bats, there's a lot of bats around here. Am I talking about the animal? Am I talking about an American baseball bat? Am I talking about a British cricket bat? And again, I need that little context, that little context that says the category is American sports. Now, IVRs and speech recognition systems aren't prepared for that context. They get accent, they get intonation, and I would really recommend a lot of people, like, let, let's just start with text. Let's not even start with spoken words because you can get right Mrs. Right right now kind of confusions let's start with text and let's then put text in a context can I understand that context can I then apply machine learning so every time there's an interaction I learn what works and what doesn't work so I don't program with Q&A's like Watson did Watson did machine learning and the third is can I give answers based on confidence and then you come with Watson and we're two years on the road and we do phenomenal impressive things in healthcare, I think the work with Memorial Sloan Kettering is, is groundbreaking and profound. And yet, the moment I come to the next company, and that's the reason why we open up the ecosystem, I realize it's not the external data that's going to be the issue. It's going to be 
understanding their internal data. And the good thing about all these medical companies, these healthcare providers, they have cases. They have hundreds, thousands of cases about when somebody comes in and has a headache and has temperature because they use those cases to teach potential doctors. You go to a company and say, so what is the the training in the case for somebody in the call center? If somebody calls and says, hey, I just bought a a phenomenal product for my new laptop um, and I can't get it to work. How do you recognize the words and the context? And speech recognition and text recognition requires so much context that you need to train the machine. And if you have the cases to train the machine, you have the first. Then the second is you need to give examples and data from the past. And I've done a few projects now the last two years. And I can tell you that a lot of companies still have problems in unleashing their internal data. So what are the five things stopping before you go to cognitive? One, can I truly unleash the big data? Like this is a little bit like Michelangelo. Can I see the angel that is hidden in the marble and carve it out? Can I start with a core business question and say, this is the context that I'm going to start with speech. I'm not going to try to play Jeopardy again, but I'm a bank. It's going to be about mortgage or college advisor. I'm a company that does um, tracking and skiing and, and uh, kind of equipment, and I'm going to help people to get an advice when they go to some obscure off-piece situation, what is the gear that they're going to need. That's a pretty defined domain, defined context, and the questions and the cases to learn are smaller. Then you can say, what kind of data do I need to connect? So I need external data, I need reviews, I need social sentiments, not necessarily social networks, but I need sentiments, and I need to combine it with my internal product tables, and I need to combine it with my internal point of sales or the point of sales of my partners. And that's what goes wrong. Because all those internal stuff wasn't aligned. Most people didn't know where it came from, they were historical legacy systems, and there wasn't a master data management, and there was no common language. If I come in a company and I ask, hey, sales, report number 12, the word sales, is that with or without returns? And five people give me six answers. How do you expect a machine, cognitive technology like Watson, to deal with it? So my recommendation is do it in steps. Don't focus directly on cognitive. Get yourself on a journey to this. One, unleash some big data, internal and external, and get some small cases running. Example, can I, and we did this with a global retailer, can I take social sentiments and reviews about fast-moving electronic goods, combine it with my point of sales internally, and actually do a better forecast? And yes, we did. We were 24% closer to actual, and this is one of the leading retailers in forecasting, but taking their external data, their partner data, their normal forecast data, and their sentiment and the locations, we were able to predict it. That's great. Now the problem is, how are you going to visualize that? Well, let's take an example here, Eric. Do you have an iPad or an iPod or one of those devices you play music on? I do. Okay. Um, so do I. I am very happy with my iPhone, and I have 24,630 songs on it. took all kinds of unleashing big data. I took MP3s, I took CDs, I took vinyls, vinyls for my dad. They're all on the phone. took me an enormous amount of time to tag and to get the, the cover art, etc. on it. And now I want to make a playlist for a party. And 
five years ago when I had a party, I took five CDs, six CDs, and I had my playlist ready. Now I'm spending two hours and finding the playlist of my daughter in Spotify and before I have that playlist. So having the data unleashed doesn't mean you have it accessible, visualized. So my advice for companies, focus on your business case. What is your most important key question? What is the capability that you want to have? Is the capability that you want to share it? Great. How are you going to visualize it? Third is then make it collaborative because when Mark finds something, how is he going to give it to Eric and, and back to sailing? How is Eric going to trust that my data is good? How is Eric going to feel comfortable? So like if you take the impact of, hey, recently there was a flood in Thailand. I'm a merchandiser. You're a merchandiser. The question is, what's the impact of the flood in Thailand? And then you say, oh, well, I already did some work. How do I find that? How do we share that together? How do we find and share our analytics? And then the next step is, right, visualize, unleash, visualize, collaborate. How are we going to make it predictive? So we say, okay, if something like this is happening, we need to rapidly get X, Y, and Z in our inventory. And that's the moment you have enough opened up that you say, now we can give this to a cognitive system. The cognitive system can learn from our collaboration and our dialogues. It can learn from everything we open up in our data. It can learn from the way that visualization is effective and which predictive. Because Watson isn't predictive. What everybody says, cognitive technology isn't predictive. When you say to cognitive technology, hey, um, what's going to be the best-selling toy this Christmas? It has no clue. When you say, what were the patterns that you saw the last two years around the beginning of November that gave you an indication what the best-selling toy was? It said, I saw those patterns. It gave me 67% confidence that Iron Man and um, the rest of the Avengers set were going to be the best-selling toys for Christmas, especially in the Lego category. That's great. Can I now take those patterns and put them in a predictive engine? and get the outcome of the predictive engine in a collaborative platform. And that, that's more where we're going. Now, how many companies do we know that really have an internal collaborative platform, an internal Google Plus or internal Facebook? Most people still send data out over spreadsheets and email. So what's blocking us? We haven't unleashed it. That's why startups are doing so much better than larger companies. Well, let, let's talk about that for a minute. So. When it comes to big data, is bigger better? Does more data equal smarter outcomes? Or is more data potentially a recipe for uh, you know, misinformation and confusion? <clears throat> you know, th th this is a really good question. Is more data better or is more data a, a recipe for, for misinformation? Um, it depends on the quality of the data. Like if I, one of the things going to Jeopardy is we had a pretty good confidence in the different sources. We knew if the National Enquirer was the source that the fact-finding had another principle than, for instance, if the New York Times had been the source. Wikipedia had been the source. We knew there was an issue that people could have been updating it, and therefore not all data was true. While obviously if we took better information and we took past sensors, we know that facts was pretty high. So if I have big data, it's not important if it's really big, but it's important like how much can I trust it? Like it doesn't matter if it's a little bit of a sensor and a little bit of a text and a little bit of a point of sale. The point is, can I combine them? Is it is is the quality good enough for me? And it doesn't have to be perfect, 
but it's the trust factor that I have consistent enough. Now, I find the advantage of a really big data set that I can really find a needle in a, basically in a stack of needles. Um, what I need to do is, coming back to the previous point, is separate signals from the noise and say, what are the really more important signals? If I went back 20 years in time and I wanted to start a coffee shop, or let's say today I want to start a coffee chain that was founded 20 years ago, I wouldn't be able to find in my data any statement that somebody said, hey, I'm willing to pay five bucks for a cup of coffee instead of 50 cents. I would find a lot of people expressing the need to have a place to hang out, to have something that's a little bit more upscale than a fast food, something out and hang out and if they are independent or contractors or between client location that they can do one or two hours of work and indeed the need to have a decent cup of coffee. And with that, the concept for a coffee chain is found. But I wouldn't have found it in the data. I would have found that need for that experience in the signals between the data. It doesn't matter how big that set is or not. What's more important, can I rely and trust on the quality of the set that I get? So, so you're looking at the connections between the data, not necessarily the data itself. Right. I'm looking to the connection or I'm looking to what's missing. Um, one of the things I really like what we did with Watson in the beginning with the medical applications, it did, we did not only look to what does somebody say when they are in the intake with the nurse or the nurse practitioner, but what is it they haven't said. They haven't had backache. They haven't mentioned headache. They haven't mentioned diarrhea. Therefore, these things we can take out. And, and that doesn't, or therefore these things, you need to do a check question, like is it sure you don't have that? It's the same with data. It's, it's interesting. What's in the data is as much as interesting as what's between the gaps, what's missing. What does it, it tell seems like It seems like the biggest gap and the biggest area for confusion is language because language is so imprecise. And so you think about the different types of data that you would uh, think about and analyze, you know, machine data and transactional data. Then when you get down to social data, and I, I would include sentiment and social media, and even I would say in our day and age, news media, because you have so many um, enthusiasts you know, who are creating uh, blog posts for brands like Forbes, it would seem to me that in those areas, there's the biggest uh, potential for misinformation. And oh, oh, unless absolutely. you can really, I mean, I don't know how you get your arms around that without being a human being. Well, I mean, it basically it's it's um, one of the thing of the pleasures that I have is actually uh, I do some some teaching as well, and I do that academically. But I'm also doing that, for instance, at the it's it's a high school, the international school where my children go, and filtering the emotions. Even with language is not enough because language can have sarcasm. Yeah, right. That's phenomenal. Or I really love that. And the tone of voice is enough to say, yeah, not. Um, teenagers are phenomenal, by the way, in that in creating new versions of language. And so context is really important. Let's let's take your smartphone. Let's say you have. Um, it doesn't matter if you have an Android or you have Apple with Siri. Take the Google Voice or Siri and say, text my wife, I love her. Your partner is going to get a text message saying, I love her. And you have to explain to her, like, no, 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 I love you, I love you, not her. 
Uh, because she's going to ask, who is her? Who is her? Who is her? So the, the context is so important. So when we get sentiment statements on the web, in the digital world, how do we find what's important? And actually, you need to try to combine it with behavior. For example, when I'm talking about a Maserati, are the words that I use, do they give you more confidence that I talk about the joy of ownership? Do I talk about the intention to buy? Do I talk about my personal point of view about the latest model? Or am I just spreading admiration about it? So the first thing is, can I get the sentiment around it, what somebody, the intent? And that's actually pretty easy. You can do a lot of word tagging and, and um word weighing and when you weigh that you you see okay and that's just in one language now the second part is how much still do i trust the source so i need to start ranking how much do i trust this source is it somebody just blogging on the internet is the source that actually does fact finding what we know is in uh, from from social media analytics and from social sentiment analytics is that in Eastern European countries, a lot of the English printed media tend to be a little bit more biased in a positive way than, for instance, the national languages. So I really need some human being to double check how much confidence do I have in this kind of source. Now, next thing is I need to look to whether I have confidence in the source or not, what's the influence on the source? So if Eric Schwarzman, for instance, is talking about something that he really finds important, how many people does he hit and how many people follow up by change and anticipated behavior? You know, in a, when you go to football, it's not the first person that stands up that makes the wave that counts. It's the second person because that person makes the rest stand up to the wave. So I need to know in a dialogue who is that second person? Who do they influence? I'm not interested in your privacy, in your name, your address. I need to know what waves are created. So then I can say that someone like you in the past have created waves. So your wave, even if you come from a blog post that I have some questions about, your wave is going to be important because you have impact. Whether the wave is fair or not fair, but you have impact. So I take impact, I take influence, I take the sentiment and the intent around it, and I get some kind of confidence about what's saying, being said. And then I look to real facts. So what is it that people really do? Did they, I look to a point of sale table, I look to tweets, I look to um, census data, 40, 50 taps. And those two I take together to make a model. I still say, if I'm not sure about the sentiment, I look to the fact, because you and I can stand outside a big supermarket chain and ask people, would you pay a buck more for a more environmental-friendly detergent? And most people will tell us straight in the eyes, yeah, I would. And then you go to the point of sales table afterwards, and you have to like, yeah, most don't. So you still need to get some facts to, to balance those, those sentiments. I want to ask you a very basic question. I, I wouldn't even call this a big data question, but I, I'd be very curious on your guidance in this area. A lot of our listeners use uh, tools to analyze social data and um, news media. And uh, the popular tools in this category uh, that a lot of our listeners use might be um, a, a simple free tool like Feedly, or I don't know if you're familiar with it, it's um, uh, sort of a, an easy news monitoring, social media monitoring tool. 
Uh, there's another by a French company called NetVibes. And then some of the premium services that a lot of our listeners use are a product by Salesforce.com called uh, Radian 6, actually recently mm-hmm. purchased by Salesforce.com. Um, they use a product called Sysimos. Uh, some of them use uh, Meltwater. Some of them use a product called Recorded Future. Um, and they're all, you know, easy to use. You don't have to be a technical person. There's a graphical user interface, and you can try to get make sense and, and get business insight from news media, mainstream news media, as well as social media. Well, social media where the social media user allows that information to be public. Um, and, 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 you know, this is an outgrowth of, you know, from my standpoint, it's an outgrowth of the time when we used to have what was called news clipping services. And these were services where you would give them the name of your company or the name of your competitor or the name of your brand, and they would actually have a team of people who would read magazines and newspapers. And then, you know, two, three weeks after the story came out, they would, you know, clip it out and send it to you in the mail, I mean, pre-internet. Um, and that's obviously been replaced now with these online news clipping services. And then for the folks in marketing and PR, that's often grown into, hey, how do we analyze what's being said about us on social media or our competitors on social media and the news media and try to pull some meaningful business intelligence from that to show a return on investment for what we do from a marketing and PR standpoint. If someone was in that boat, and they're using a tool like one of the ones I mentioned, what would, they, what would be the best type of metrics for them to look to to prove value? Yeah, that's, I, I love that question. I really, really love the question. I think it's such an important question. First is, um, a tool is as good as you set it up. So let's cut this in free. How do I use the tool? How does it? Uh, what are the? How does it have value? And what are the metrics? So at first start like, what are you looking for in the tool? An, an example is when people only look to their brands with that tool. They might do a pretty good job and say, hey, so many people still talk positive about our brands. By the way, the amount of friends and fans I have on. Facebook or growing up in Google Plus might also be pretty uh, pretty good, I would say. But nevertheless, that's one. Now, the second part is that I have is like, yeah, but um, let's say I am a company, I make bread. Bread is pretty commodity. I will find zilch serious things about my brand. I mean, do you really come home and you say, oh, honey, I bought um, a loaf of X, brand X. You have like, I bought rye bread, I bought brown bread, whatever. Especially in the U.S., the offering is growing rapidly compared to what's available in Europe. So you need to look again to what are people talking about. For instance, people might not be talking about my brand of bread, but they might actually be pretty much talking about what they like about it. So I need to use my tool different. What is it that people in context of bread are talking about? They talk about they want it more salty, they want it less salty. They talk about that they how they combine it, how they use it. So the first thing I would recommend everybody is if you really want to use this tool greatly, do not just look to your brands because you will get limited data and you will always look to the best. Look to the experience, the words and the experience. But take the output of one question, what are the experiences people are talking about, and feed them then in your next set of questions, like so in what relationship does it work and how does it apply. That, that's a pretty 
powerful approach, I would say. Now, having said that, we'll come to the next part. We'll say, okay, what are the metrics that I'm going to do? Um, these are the typical kind of sentiments. So you take those experience and you actually make those experience different kind of metrics. Now, they are not important for your executives. They're important for your marketing operations, for your trade promotion, and for your practical. And then you roll them up, and you're going to say market share. Now, let's give an example how one of my clients uses this today. Originally, what they used to do is have a dashboard where they had their normal sales and their normal distribution parameters, and they say, how much did we sell? What are the numbers? What, what's in the pipeline by our distributors? And they did uh, beverage, um, alcoholic and non-alcoholic beverage. And based on that, they say, okay, this is our sales. This is the amount. But then they had like, oh, we have 10% more, 10% less. They didn't know if they did well. So they would buy external data. This is typical kind of companies that would provide them, IRI, Nielsen, and those kind of consolidators that would come with market share. And they say, okay, six weeks after the fact, I know that my sales end up 5%, and my market share, the market also went up 5%, so my market share is still the same. But again, that's weeks later after the fact. Now, what they start doing, they start doing two things. They start saying, I take sentiment analytics out of forms, out of transactions, net promoter score with my business partners, my distributors, so I can see how happy my distributors and business partners are. I'll add that to my normal numbers, to my point of, I add point of sales directly, so I get a better impact with point of sales data, how I'm doing in particular store versus others, and I take the sentiment and when I take the different changes in sentiment, those metrics together will actually give me an indication what's happening in the market. Am I doing better or worse than my competition? So sentiment by itself, worthless, really. So people like Eric Schwarzman's podcast, so what? Do they like it more than someone else? Are they actually moving in large amounts to it? Does it get a bigger influence? Will it actually help you to attract more sponsoring or advertisement or, or whatever? That's what really counts. So the metrics are not static metrics, but they are what I call key performance predictors. What does it mean for me? So the sentiment is changing. So I will go to a change of portfolio. Are people moving from product A to product B? Are people talking more about my service? Are people talking more, more about my um, online versus my offline channel? Those are the strategic things that, that matter. And, and there's no one answer I can give in a call like this. It's very particular for a company. I can say, like in this, this example, this CPG company, this beverage company, we took literally the brand perception, the repeat that it came back, the association with other products, with other experiences, with going out, and the day of the week, and the area of, of the country. And those gave a pretty good indication if we should do more trade promotion, if we should get more bar and entertainment venues to stock a little bit up more um, and th those kind of things. In the end, so what, like every part of business, you listen to the signals, you make decisions. So one of the things you mentioned earlier was you, you mentioned, you know, it's about the connections between the data and about the data that's not there. And with the exception of recorded future, none of the platforms I mentioned to you really look at that. Um, my social graph is can be expressed numerically based on who I interact with regularly, who I don't interact with, uh, who I'm connected with that I exchange messages with versus public posts. 
Um, so there's a lot of data there uh, that can express how I interact with who and express who and, and, and I guess quantify and describe who I am in the context of others and a social network. Yet there's really very few tools for analyzing that. I know of one called Tracker. And this is a tool for, it's just kind of like a people search engine that allows you to find experts on a given topic based on their social interactions and based on the um, actions that people take when they share. Have you done any projects where you've sort of looked at the social graph and tried to bring that into a big data model to help uh, express a more accurate outcome? Yeah, yeah. Actually, I mentioned one example earlier, and, and what we did there is, is we um, actually we used IBM technology there, which is in my case quite obvious. Um, we used IBM's Big Insight, which has some social media analytics in it. But the good thing is I keep my data raw. So I get all my data in and I keep them raw. And while I can visualize it and make all kinds of graphs, it allows me to cross-reference or cross-fertilize those data. So I can take the content of people's uh, social streams and link them to my point of sales data. And that's really where the power is. For instance, when I can say what people talk about, what isn't what they're talking about, and what happens. So if I isolate, for instance, uh, locations, location because people put it at part of their social stream, location because people actually talk about a a place where they live. And again, the moment I get the data in, I don't know the persons, and I don't care. I don't need to know their names and their user IDs. What I need to know is just unique identifier that I know that the 12 user, the 12 tweets are from the same user, but I'm not interested in their name, and that's not how I want it in. I think privacy and ethics are so incredibly important when you use this data, and you need to not only look to what's legal allowed, but also what's morally important and ethically when you take the data. Now, I have the data in my hands, and then I start saying, can I cross-reference it with other data that I have to see if those gaps are bigger or smaller? So instead of graphing it in the beginning, which is a great, there's nothing wrong with it, taking a data snapshot and making a graph is phenomenal if you want to share it, but it doesn't help you to explore. To explore, I need to actually start connecting, build connection, build it in a model, run that model from different angles, look to the confidence I get out of some, and then I visualize. And nothing wrong with those tools. I think those tools are um, incredible, good, small pocket knives with a few options on it. But I rather work with with a larger set of, of toolkits when I do these things. So, so my me, thought is, t- tell me if you agree. So my thought is, any of the tools that I just mentioned, if you can't take that data and compare it to machine data, transactional data, other data sets, you're, you're, I mean, you're not looking at the full picture. Correct. You're not looking at the full picture. And, and, and again, some people don't want that, and that's okay, right? Some people don't want to look at the group. They just want a snapshot, like how many people more like my campaign on Facebook. And that's good. It's great for that. How many people are complaining that they have been delayed with our airplane per airport? Great. That's that's actually very valuable. Knowing how much of people are upset about your service per location is a phenomenal insight already. Let's not downplay that. And those tools are great for that. But if you really want to get insight and discovery, you need to get the raw data that those tools would use. 
and, and mix and match that with other data internally or externally. Now, Mark, um, I don't want you to get too far off course in your boat wherever you're sailing, so I'm going to give you my final question. So, obviously, we've had a number of you know, reports of U.S. companies losing deals to European competitors, partly because of the intrusive U.S. government snooping uh, leaked by Edward Snowden. And this has resulted in fear, uh, particularly amongst multinational corporations, that if they go with a U.S. vendor, they're essentially giving their data over to the national, you know, uh, to, uh, to the NSA and, and, and to the... Uh, uh, being being scrutinized by the Prism program, so um, I guess what you know are are you hearing anything about that? What's your prediction with that? Uh, has the National Security Agency potentially damaged the prospects of U.S. companies by by overreaching? Um, Wow, what are your that's thoughts? A very com- that's a very complex <laughs> question. It's a little bit out of my pay grade as well. Um, l- l- let me give you first is, is I mean, I, I spend half the time in Europe at the moment, and one of the things that I notice is that, of course, any kind of, any kind of um, breach of data, any kind of security, any kind of uh, hacking and snooping, all those kind of things have impact. They have impact. And the moment it starts being done by national agencies, it definitely has impact and, and it will do something. Now, it's not necessarily the, today it's the NSA, tomorrow it might be somewhere else. Um, I, I, think, I think the hardest is we need to make this in a very positive opportunity. We need to say by country, for the European Union, maybe for a bunch of countries and for companies, how do I deal with the accountability and ownership of my data? Because is the data mine? Is it the consumer? How do I deal with security? How do I deal with governance? Now, European law already says that if the data is created in Europe, you need to do a lot of work to get it actually outside of the EU. You can't just bring it in and outsource to India. You can't just host it in the U.S. There needs to be. That's the reason why companies like Apple and Microsoft have been rapidly creating data centers in Europe to to deal with it. That, that was legislation long before the Snowden and the NSA. Um, does does any kind of negative thing about this harm, whether it's NSA or um, one of the the larger game platforms being hacked or those things? Of course. It, it makes everybody, again, uncomfortable from safety about my data till full conspiracy. The human psyche is full of worry about these things. Is it a phenomenal opportunity for us, now this has happened and in the open, to actually go in the debate about ownership, accountability, privacy, the need for chief data officer, um, the need for companies to define what accountability and ownership is on their data and, and to deal with it? Absolutely. I, I think, yeah. I, I think I've been yelling the last 10 years that data is becoming a serious asset and social data and external data is now being part of your production chain already. Data is not just the new gold or the new oil. You need to refine it and store each object on its value. If you have a lot of crude oil of a lot of gold. You're not just letting it outside in your yard while everybody can come by and touch it. You protect it. You take care of it. I think it's the same for data. We need as companies to be more aware of 
one of the most important assets that drives our Western society. So I think it's a great opportunity. I think it's sad that it happened um, the way it is, but I think it's a great opportunity that we, uh, as businesses and individuals, actually have to rethink how we deal with the data that's important to us. Mark Tierlink, Global Strategist from the IBM Center of Competence. Ducks, get a hay. It's been a pleasure, sir. Thank you. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com. On the Record Online is hosted by Eric Schwartzman, an independent online communications consultant whose clients include the U.S. Department of State, the United States Marine Corps, the U.S. Embassy of Greece, the Government of Singapore, Johnson & Johnson, Toyota, Southern California Edison, the Environmental Defense Fund, and dozens of small to medium-sized organizations. For information about engaging Eric Schwartzman as a speaker, social media trainer, or digital strategist, visit www.ericschwartzman.com or send email to eric at ericschwartzman.com.